In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Not running your business on NetSuite is like trying to sink a putt with a cap pulled over your eyes. NetSuite by Oracle is the number one cloud financial system, giving you visibility and control of your financials, inventory, budgeting, and more all in one place. 93% of surveyed businesses increase their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 31,000 businesses already use NetSuite. This summer, NetSuite has a special financing program for those ready to upgrade at netsuite.com go. netsuite.com go. Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. This week, we have a new episode for you guys, and for those of you who have put two and two together and realised that I am off on holiday to Scotland this year, and then having seen the picture, have worked out that this episode is what my friend Lee so crudely put uh, as Nicola Sturgeon's inspiration um, it is Sir William Wallace. So for those of you who do not know very much about William Wallace, he is a very, very famous character in Scottish history. Um, he is seen as um, the man who fought for Scottish independence, the original uh, fighter for Scotland and its people. And for the English, he's seen as a traitor. So we'll... We'll work out how we feel about this one towards the end. Now, obviously, we are talking twelve um, hundreds going into thirteen hundreds. So, you know, realistically, seven hundred years ago, I don't think the English really see him as a traitor anymore. But certainly, around the thirteen hundreds uh, and his death in thirteen o five, he was definitely seen as a traitor. Now, he was born. In uh, a town called Eldersill, um, which is in Scotland, um, and he was born in 1270. So, for those of you who have worked out, that's only 35 years that he was alive. So, he didn't have a very long life. As you'll see from this episode, he certainly packed a lot into it. Now, one of the most common misconceptions. Um, from William Wallace is the film Braveheart so for those of you who have seen the film Braveheart with Mel Gibson you will be quite aware of the uh, they will never take our freedom speech things like this as far as we know that is not historically accurate that speech um, although it does make a good film what's more wrong I suppose about that film is the fact that the film is called Braveheart now Braveheart is obviously a nickname 
but unfortunately it was the nickname for Robert the Bruce now Robert the Bruce was possibly the the, the second I suppose the the successor or the second man to fight for Scottish independence and the man who won the most famous battle in Scottish history which is Bannockburn which is something I will cover at a later date Bannockburn is a um, very very famous battle in Scotland it's where the Scots um, beat the English uh, quite conclusively and won um, their independence from the crown so Bannockburn um, was very very famous and like I said the story of Robert the Bruce and Braveheart is a very different story to possibly the Braveheart story that Mel Gibson portrays however we're not talking about Robert the Bruce today we are talking about William Wallace so this man is a similar time we are talking a similar time period Robert the Bruce was sort of 1320s and William Wallace was sort of the early 1300s so there's not a huge amount of distance between the two but just so you know anybody who's thinking oh Braveheart you're wrong that's the wrong person one of the main reasons William Wallace is such a well portrayed story in Scotland is the fact that he was such an underdog he was such a unimportant man in the 1200s he was born as the second son to a mediocre knight in the Scottish uh, sort of in the Scottish hierarchy he was not born to be successful he was not born to be famous he was really just the man who who nobody would have known about had it not been for what he did now obviously i know this sounds really stupid to you know majority of people make it from you know from their actions but when you're talking about medieval history the majority of well-known knights and famous kings princesses princes etc um, they are born into that position and we know about them because of their lineage not because of their actions in this particular case had William Wallace not have had the actions that he took he would not have been famous you know we would never have never have heard about him when Wallace was born 1270 Scotland was a very prosperous country it was a very well-kept country it had a lot of good trade it was getting uh, more and more powerful and there was no more importantly there was no beef or no reason to fight or war with England they were both countries were quite happy getting along side by side Scotland under uh, King Alexander um, were absolutely fine and there was no reason for war unfortunately in 1286 King Alexander decides to take a horse ride home uh, from a night out drinking at a different castle and it is very very bad weather he loses control of his horse and he falls down a, uh, a cliff or a path um, and he's found dead the following day um, now we have a problem Scotland all of a sudden has no king a few months after the death of Alexander III, the heir to the Scottish throne also passed away, meaning Scotland was thrown into turmoil. There were rival factions and nobles fighting for power and no real end in sight. There was no real 
conclusive uh, family or nobility that would actually take control of Scotland at this time. Now, for those of you who have seen Pirates of the Caribbean, um, you will remember the episode or the episode, the scene where they're all sat around the table and they're voting for the next pirate king. This is essentially what was going to happen in Scotland. Every noble would have voted for themselves. There would have been no clear winner. And the nobles knew this. They knew this is what would happen in Scotland. And they had to have a backup plan. The backup plan was to make sure that there is intervention from a foreign country. Or from a foreign king. The nearest king to Scotland was Edward I of England. And they asked him to intervene. And could he help pick a new king? Edward knew what he was doing. He was very cold and very calculated. And he'd already taken over the country of Wales and Ireland. This was his opportunity. So what he did was he basically said that he would be in charge of Scotland. What He, he didn't take the position of king in Scotland. So what, what he actually did was he appointed a puppet which was a man named John Balil. He appointed him as the King of Scotland, and everything was run through Edward. So he was basically king, just without the crown on his head. And this is where William Wallace's story really begins, because the nobles of Scotland were sort of happy to allow this to happen. As far as they were concerned, there was no wars, there was no fighting, um, no fighting in between the noble families either. Um, so there was no civil war going on. There was no war with England. There was nothing. No problems as far as they could see it. Because Scotland was still at peace. However, for the common folk, for the normal people, the knights of the realm, um, the people who weren't in that position of power because you've got to remember the nobles at this time were probably making a fair bit of money about the fact knowing that you know king edward was actually in charge they they weren't they weren't doing badly off this so your common people were well aware of what was going on and were, were not happy and up steps 16 17 year old william wallace one story that circulated around this time of William Wallace was that he was out at a river fishing when he was approached by five English soldiers and the English soldiers said basically give us your catch give me your fish uh, Wallace not very happy about this turns around and says I'll give you half you're not having all of it I'll give you half to which the English soldier obviously is a bit pissed off and not happy that uh, this low-born Scottish man is, is giving him a bit of lip and he lunges at Wallace with his sword now the story goes that Wallace parries the sword with his fishing rod takes the sword off the knight cuts his head off with one clean sweep immediately kills two other two of the other knights and the other two flee and stories like this I mean there's no real evidence to to suggest whether this story is true or not but stories like this began to circulate about William Wallace 
there were other stories of other people that were that were circulating as well he was not the only man who was against the english occupation in scotland but the reason his stories stuck was because of the fact that he then went on to almost prove these stories to be pretty much true so i'm assuming there were similar stories about other other knights or other lowborn uh, soldiers and they then didn't go on to fulfill that sort of a legacy uh, wallace clearly had the the macho to back up these stories we don't know much about william wallace's appearance there are uh, images that are put online obviously uh, modern interpretations of him a lot of these uh, pictures these depictions do show a man that's a little bit older obviously he wasn't that old he was 35 when he died so some of these pictures may not be well they're not historically accurate the only thing we know about him is he was fucking huge he was about six foot six um a burly strong scotsman um saw himself as a bit of a hunter um you know his his coins that were found at, at his area in scotland show a bow and arrow which suggests that he saw himself as a hunter rather than a bowman um around this time scotland wasn't really known for the bow and arrow it was more england and that was again going into the 14th century and the 15th century where England really sort of took on the, the longbow. So the bow and arrow was essentially a, just a hunting weapon. Um, and yeah, so we don't, we don't know huge much. Uh, we don't know a huge amount about what he looked like. Um, other than the fact, like I said, that he, he was massive. So there's a story that says he managed to take a knight's head off with one sweep. Um, for a man that size, it, it is possible. Um, yeah, so I'll leave that one with you guys as to what you think on that one. Um, we, we'll flash forward a little bit in history. We'll, we'll flash forward to um, 1296 when uh, John Balliol, the appointed King of Scotland, rebels against Edward. So he's fed up of being a puppet king. He raises an army he rebels against uh, Edward and he enters into northern England. The problem with the Scots doing something like this is it gave Edward his excuse to take Scotland by force. He wanted Scotland as him as the ruler, not a puppet ruler, as the official ruler of Scotland. And he couldn't do that whilst he had a puppet in charge. The Scots wouldn't really have gone for it at the time um, and this was the best he could do but now the Scots were fighting in his country they were raiding his country he had every reason to raise an army and go to war so you may be wondering now Scotland's rebelled against England England are now going to war what is going to cause a minor noble like William Wallace to actually rise up and fight it's not just a call to arms there has to be something that really sparks sparks something like this in people and 
what happens is there is a town which is now in England but was in Scotland about 700 years ago it was part of Scotland it's a town called Berwick-on-Tweed now Berwick-on-Tweed was a small market town uh, probably a, maybe a few thousand people living there um, I suppose a medium sized market town I suppose um, and there were five English merchants who were working in Berwick-on-Tweed who were murdered and their goods were stolen general crime no real no real point behind it other than theft and it was one of the first places that Edward came to and when Edward got there and heard this story he decided to ransack the town now you're maybe talking a militia in this town of maybe a hundred people tops and a British or an English army of well over 2,000 coming into the town very easy access to the town like I said it's a market town it's not fortified and it didn't take long for them to basically murder every Scotsman in that town and they it's not a nice story but essentially they butchered every living male in the town um, and they raped all of the women and then murdered the women um, and this was because when they entered the town there were a handful of archers in one tower um, in the town that were firing obviously to defend themselves um, they ended up killing Edward's cousin King Edward's cousin and these men were then burnt alive so really the the brutality of Edward in this instance is what sparked a lot of Scottish people into fighting because it was against all the rules of warfare you know all this time um, there was that code of chivalry we've spoken about it in other episodes but that code of chivalry where one man fights another man it is man on man army on army in a field in fair open ground you don't send thousands of trained killers into a small town of a few hundred and murder everybody um, and this is this was enough to spark that passion in people like William Wallace to actually stand up and go no we're not having this in our country the English are not doing this this is my country and I will stand and fight for my country the English had been an annoyance for the last few years being in Scotland but they weren't taking control they weren't butchering people in the streets they were just they were just there acting like a a bully in a playground and there's a big difference between a bully in a playground and a kid walking in with a machine gun and that's that's where they were this raid on Berwick-on-Tweed went on for three days and as the chronicles go or the, the stories go the only reason that it stopped was because Edward witnessed a uh, one of his soldiers hacking a woman to death while she was in the process of giving birth and this was enough for Edward to say no that's that's enough now we we stop but for it 
to get to that point, that's where it, it had gone too far. This is one reason why we believe Wallace got involved in, in the rebellion. The story, however, paints him in a very different light. So the following year, uh, in uh, 1297, the story tells of a love affair where he meets a woman uh, called Marion, believe it or not, a, a maid Marion, um, and he starts a love affair with her, he gets married, and there is another man who loves Maid Marion. He's the Sheriff of Lanark, and he's called William Hesselrig. Hesselrig and Wallace get into a fight, and William, uh, sorry, and Marion allow or helps Wallace escape. In retaliation to this, Hesselrig murders Marion, and this causes a feud between. A massive feud now between Wallace and Hesselrig. Wallace returns to the the town with his men, um, but they do it under like cover of darkness. They enter in unnoticed into the town. They're not going in as a big band of men. And he breaks into the sheriff's house. When he breaks into his house, he he kills him. But it's said that as the sheriff stood up. Wallace brought his axe down on the top of his head, cut straight through his head and his skull and hit his collarbone. Now, if this story is even half true, you can imagine how strong William Wallace actually was. Because to do that is virtually impossible. And, yeah, just unbelievable strength. And his men then go on a rampage, killing any Englishman that they find in the town. Now, this story in particular, you can either believe it or disbelieve it. It is entirely up to you. There is evidence to suggest that Wallace was the man who killed the sheriff, or killed Hesselrig. And there is evidence to suggest that Wallace and his men went through the town killing the English. However, the story beforehand where he meets his love of his life and the love of his life is killed and so on and so forth. There is very, very little evidence to suggest this was ever real. Okay, It could be that the Scottish are trying to paint their hero as exactly that, as a hero. It doesn't bode well for them to suggest that William Wallace decides to burst into a town and murder English for no reason. So, let's put a a love story in there to sort of justify it. On the flip side to that, it could be absolutely spot on, absolutely true, and he is for all intents and purposes justified for what he does we will never know we will never know whether it's true if you are Scottish that story is true if you are a historian or I'm going to say or English um, you'd probably suggest that isn't true or at least it's been over exaggerated for the purposes of making Wallace seem like the hero rather than the villain. What we do know 
is that this story of Wallace killing the Sheriff of Lanark cemented him in Scottish legend. It turned his small band of troops into a fully formed militia. It then turned his fully formed militia into a fully fledged army. He suddenly had the people behind him. He had the backing of people and when he walked through towns in Scotland, men flocked to be by his side. They wanted to be part of William Wallace's army. They wanted to ride side by side with the hero that killed the sheriff, the man who is cemented into Scottish legend. William Wallace was not the only rebel in Scotland. There was a very famous man called Andrew Murray. He was a, a a North Scotsman or Highlander, depending on, I, I would say Highlander is probably more accurate term. Um, if not, let me know, but he was definitely from the North end of Scotland. And he had, again, formed his own militia, his own army, um, and was sort of running similar campaigns, guerrilla campaigns against the English. Murray and Wallace joined forces and this meant that the English had to act because these two joining forces together meant that this rebellion was no longer a small rebellion. This was something that needed to be dealt with. Now, King Edward was actually away in France at the time, but he did order a huge army to move into Scotland to take on these rebels. There was a battle that was on its way, and this battle would make or break William Wallace and his reputation. Wallace and Murray picked the town of Stirling, and this was where they were going to meet the English. Stirling and Stirling Bridge, more importantly, was the stronghold to the Highlands. Without taking Stirling Bridge and opening up the Highlands to the English, the English had no chance of taking Scotland. So Wallace and Murray positioned themselves in Stirling, just north of the bridge, on the higher ground. Facing them was 1,000 English cavalry and 50,000 fully trained English soldiers. Wallace and Murray had about 5,000 men, somewhere like somewhere along the 5,000 to 6,000 men. So they were outnumbered 10 to 1, maybe more, depending on, on the figures. The English army were not here to play around. They were going to crush Wallace, crush Murray, and take the Highlands if they'd have if they were successful at Stirling Bridge, Scotland would have fell. There was nobody left in Scotland that would have stopped them from taking the whole of the country. Wallace was very, very clever, very astute, <clears throat> and a very, very good soldier. And he had a battle plan. Now, let's put this into perspective. You're a Scottish knight, you are with William Wallace, you feel pretty safe, you know that this man is good at what he does, 
But you then look over the brow of the hill and you see the best trained army in the world with the best knights in the world, the best cavalry in the world, more money than any other army in the world. And they outnumber you by 50,000 to 5,000 men. William Wallace is underestimated, I think, to be able to instill that belief in his own men that they actually stood a chance of winning this fight. Because if I was on that battlefield, even I would have just gone, look, mate, I believe you, but sorry, the odds are against us. You know, work on the statistics. Well, like I said, William Wallace was a tactician. He was a very, very good leader, and he obviously instilled confidence in his men. His leadership skills and his tactics in battle meant that for the English to actually reach the battleground, because of where the Scottish had positioned themselves, meant that they had to get 50,000 men over a very narrow bridge and onto the battlefield. When they reached the battlefield, they had to cross a boggy marshland um, that was getting worse and worse as the tide comes in. And Wallace knew that he could use the landscape of Scotland and the landscape of Stirling to his benefit. The English made three attempts to cross the bridge, and each time they failed. And this wasn't them failing because the Scottish were pushing them back. This was them failing because of the elements, the battleground, and the fact that they couldn't generally could not get over the bridge. So what they did was they sent peace envoys uh, with peace terms to William Wallace, and I think they sent three from the stories. They sent three peace envoys over, and each time Wallace sent them back with the words, we've not come for peace, we've come for a fight. And the English were more than happy to oblige with this silly request as far as they saw. The bridge that they had to cross was so narrow it only allowed two horses width at a time. Now, what the English did was they started to cross the bridge, waiting for this battle. And the code of chivalry at the time would be that the Scottish were to wait for the English to get over the bridge, set up in formation, ready for the fight. However, this wasn't William Wallace's way. He wasn't looking for a fair fight. He didn't want it wasn't going to be a fair fight anyway. They were outnumbered ten to one. So he waited till just the right amount of English should come over the bridge and then he attacked. And he attacked in such a way that meant that the English couldn't get any more men over the bridge. And he cut off the retreat to the bridge. Meaning that any English on the north side of that bridge were dead, basically. He went completely against the rules of war at the time. However, this was his last attempt to save his country and you can't really blame him for 
the tactics that he used because at the end of the day the tactics he used worked they did repel the English the chronicles say they killed roughly 5,000 English so this is one man every Scotchman killed one man basically now I'm assuming some probably killed more and some probably killed none you know we've we've all seen those battles where you've got that one person that goes around killing more but what I'm saying is is that the Scottish did that much damage to the English at Stirling Bridge that even though the English still outnumbered them they had to retreat they could not get men over the bridge because the Scottish had not blocked the bridge off they couldn't get their soldiers back over the bridge to retreat there was just no way that they could actually win in that position that they were at so they had to retreat regroup and try again now this victory echoed through Scotland this was the biggest victory that the Scottish could have asked for they were outnumbered they were outmanned they were out equipment out equipmented that's not right but you get the gist of what I'm saying they they didn't have the same equipment that the Scot that the English had they didn't have the money that the English had they didn't have the skill that the English had or what you would assume the skill that the English had being the best fighting force in the world at the time but yet against all the odds William Wallace battered the English at Stirling Bridge and this made him basically the most famous man in Scotland and added to that Andrew Murray was one of the very few casualties for the Scots at Stirling Bridge meaning that he didn't even have to share this victory with anybody he was the sole man left that won he won the Battle of Stirling Bridge because his partner was no longer there to claim the glory. Wallace was obviously buoyed with his success, his tail was up, and he took his men into northern England, where he murdered, raped, burnt monasteries to the ground. There are stories of him burning schools with school children still left inside, um, you know, laughing while priests were drowned in the rivers, things like this these are stories that came out after the Battle of Stirling you know a few weeks later from towns in the north of England saying that William Wallace had entered into England and committed these atrocities now again this is very hard as a historian because the English were creating a smear campaign against William Wallace and trying to build evidence against him for treason so should he ever be caught he could be tried for treason things like this would have been very very easy for the English to use as evidence um, I'm not suggesting that they didn't happen but I am suggesting that there is a possibility that these were over egged um, through history to accentuate his crimes and make them a lot worse than what they possibly were there was no qualms that Wallace had a huge hatred of the English and was 
clearly very good at uh, at killing the English, but there is a possibility that some of the stories, especially the English side of the border, may have been over-exaggerated because they wanted to get him for certain crimes. The same goes for the Scottish side. There is a possibility that certain stories of William Wallace from the Scottish side are over-exaggerated on the basis that they want him to look like more of a hero. So again, you can look at it both ways, but I think what we've got to do when we look at medieval history, especially when we're talking about a single figure, you have to be really aware of the fact that stories in history are basically written to whoever's point of view who's writing it. So, in other words, the English are going to write it to make him look like a dick. The Scottish are going to write it to make him look like a hero. That's pretty much the gist of it. Um, So, yeah, you've got to be well aware of that when we're looking at really any type of history, but especially this case. What we do know is he definitely entered England. And when he returned to Scotland, he was knighted. Now... We don't know who he was knighted by. Um, Stories suggest he was knighted by Robert the Bruce. But whatever happened, he was made Sir William Wallace. And Sir William Wallace was given the title of Guardian of Scotland. In all intents and purposes, he was the king without the crown. He was given absolute power of Scotland. When Wallace was to meet the English army for a second time, it would be led by King Edward. Edward was not going to allow Wallace to surprise them for a second time. And basically it demanded that Wallace had to change his tactics. Now, Wallace decided to do what was known as a scorched earth policy. In other words, as the English army progressed... Wallace and his men burnt the fields, the crops, everything in the wake of the English. In other words, meaning (coughs) excuse me, that the English could not they could not get any food. It was very, very difficult for them to get food, water, supplies, things like that. And in uh, 1298 the Battle of Falkirk Happened now. The Battle of Falkirk is a strange battle in the sense that it's very weird to explain. But basically, the English were much better equipped, as we know, they had bigger numbers and and so on and so forth. But they were at breaking point. They were at a point where another couple of days, and they probably would have retreated because they didn't have the food to last them, the battles. But for whatever reason, and we don't really know why, but William Wallace decided to stand and fight at Falkirk. Bearing in mind he'd spent the last maybe month or so not fighting the English, but burning the grounds and and keeping the English at arm's length, he decided to fight just at the point where the English probably had enough strength to fight back. 
Had he waited a couple of days, we don't know. It could have been a very different story. But essentially, he he picked the wrong the wrong battleground, and he he picked the wrong time to stand and fight. And we, as historians, we don't actually know the reason. One theory is that he thought he could win. You know, he thought the English were battered and bruised enough and and hungry enough to not actually be able to put up that much of a fight. Another reason is his new tactic, which uh, is basically the spear wall, which we have seen so, so many times in movies and things like that. But essentially, it's a group of men, uh, lower and upper, so kneeling and standing, spears raised, so that when cavalry charge, they're met by a wall of spears. Very, very dangerous. Um, this was actually William Wallace's tactic. This had never really been used in battle before. So this was his implement, and it's, it was used for a long, long time after that. But this this is possibly a reason why he, he felt that he could win. Um, the other reason is could just be that he was tired of not fighting. You know, he had that success at Sterling. His tail was up and he was ready for another fight. He thought he could win it. And you know, let's let's be honest, this man's hobby was killing Englishmen, so this was uh he'd waited long enough and he wanted a fight. We we'll never know. But the Battle of Falkirk was crucial. Wallace set his army up at the the top of the hill he had the high ground and he had the advantage by having the high ground and the way he set his army up was four big circles of men with spears and in between the circles were his bowmen short bowmen in between each group of circles behind that he had his cavalry ready to charge the English at the bottom of the hill, cavalry, footmen, and their newest weapon, the longbow. The longbow had only really been brought into the English army over the last sort of 12 months, and it was extremely effective. It was the equivalent of the machine gun. Um, it was unbelievable that the speed that the English could get these, these arrows out, and the distance so the bows of the day the longbow almost doubled the distance from what the normal short bow could could actually achieve meaning that the english archers were well out of harm's way and just peppering the scottish with bullets uh, with bullets with arrows sorry halfway through the battle the scottish nobility which was the cavalry so then the nobles were all on on horseback um turned around and left they they believe obviously they realized that this battle was not winnable um and they left and this gave wallace a huge problem not only was he outnumbered anyway not only was he facing a weapon that they couldn't stop because they didn't very few Scotsmen used shields, okay, so in this time there wasn't many people that used shields anyway but majority of of 
soldiers fought with with a long sword all right a long sword or a a spear either would need two hands so shields were very very uncommon um and this was due to the fact that if somebody's running at you with a long sword and you had a short sword and a shield you had to be very very close to be able to inflict damage whereas the long sword gave you a little bit more length to your arm um, but either way there was no way the scots could win this battle without their cavalry and with the introduction of the longbow 10,000 scots died at the battle of falkirk william wallace was lucky to not be one of them he he actually managed to to escape with his life but not his reputation now another interesting fact from that battle is a lot of people believe that the nobility of Scotland didn't want to fight. And they didn't want to fight for William Wallace because he was lower born. So he was not of the hierarchy that these nobles were. And therefore they rebelled against him and decided not to enter into the battle. That's one answer. The other answer is that they could see the way the battle was going they could see how devastating that longbow was and they knew that had they stayed there they would have died because the cavalry the scottish cavalry would have charged down the hill into complete darkness that's how many arrows the english used to to fire it would blacken the sky there would be that many arrows. They wouldn't be able to see. Not only would they then hit this wall of arrows. They would then have to attack the English cavalry. Which outnumbered their own. And if they managed to get through that. They would then have to attack the English foot soldiers. Who at this point hadn't actually done anything in the battle. You know. It, it was just. There was no way that the Scottish cavalry could have made any difference to that battle other than to add up the number of deaths. So there's two ways of looking at it. Either Wallace was betrayed by his own nobility or his nobles were very sensible and they got off that battlefield with their lives. Wallace loses his title of Protector of Scotland and disappears into the forest uh, like he used to you know he, he becomes an outlaw again and when he actually returns he does not return as a soldier but as a political figure as a statesman um, who tries to help Scotland in a more political way rather than a violent way when Wallace enters the political field he makes gestures uh, extends an olive branch let's say, two countries such as Germany, France, Italy. He even goes to visit the Pope um, to try and basically drum up support for the Scottish cause. Now, he does this as a bit of a lone wolf because the majority of the Scottish political leaders, I, I would say, I'm going to use the word parliament, um, even though they didn't really have a parliament of sorts, but I'm going to use parliament because... That's the word we use in this country, and, and it makes sense. So, um, But the Scottish Parliament um, 
basically were under an appeasement with Edward. They were quite happy to to like lay down their arms and not fight and try and do whatever Edward wanted to do because as far as they were concerned, King Edward of England had just massacred them at Falkirk and he barely lost a soldier. So they didn't really want to take the risk of going up against the English again and behind their back William Wallace is off basically trying to drum up support from every other country in the world or every other country that he can think of Um, basically what he did it's been said that it was essentially the equivalent of appealing to the UN okay, for justice for his own country that's pretty much what he was doing but he was a political loose cannon. He was very dangerous because he went against what the Scottish people and what the Scottish nobility wanted at the time. And I say Scottish people because at this point, this was sort of 1803, now 1802, 1803, the Scots had been at war with the English for nearly 10 years. They'd lost a lot of men. Um, there were raids going on in Scotland the English were pretty much in every single town in Scotland um, and they had one minor victory at Stirling Bridge and I say minor victory because in comparison to the loss at Falkirk it was a minor battle you know the Scots killed 5,000 of the 50,000 English at Stirling Bridge but the English took out half of the Scottish army at Falkirk, over 10,000 men. So you, when you look at the, the amount of damage that was done, there is that, you know, the, the Battle of Falkirk was, was much more important to the actual war. But William Wallace was causing problems because even, like I said, even the Scottish people at this point were just like, we've had enough of this, we've had enough of the war, we've had enough of losing men, let's just knuckle under and and do what, what we need to, to survive, basically. Unfortunately for Wallace, doing things like this put him as Edward's most wanted. He was the most wanted man in Britain at this point, and he went into hiding again. This meant that there was only one end for Wallace. They would catch him. The English would catch him. And they would kill him. And unfortunately for William Wallace, it wasn't actually an Englishman who caught him. It was the Scottish that betrayed him. Um, a man named uh, Monteith, John Monteith, um, was actually a close friend of William Wallace who betrayed him. And he sold him to the English. Not only was he a friend, he was actually the godfather to both of Wallace's daughters. Um, so yeah, it was not just political, it was was very personal. And he obviously betrayed Wallace and handed his friend, basically, his death sentence. It took 17 days to drag William Wallace down to London and... He was put in front of the king at Westminster 
and tried for treason. He said nothing during his trial, except for when he was accused of treason. He said, how can I commit treason when I have not pledged myself to a king? And technically, when you look at the law for treason, he should never have been tried for treason, as far as I'm concerned, because at this point in history, Scotland was not under English rule. Scotland had its own king. Granted, it was a puppet king under the control of King Edward. However, it was not Edward himself. There was not a king of Scotland and England or a king of Great Britain. There was just a king of Scotland and a king of England. The fact that he was a puppet is almost irrelevant. The fact of the matter is, you can only commit treason if it is against your particular crown. Now, to actually say that it's treason when you're not, you're not even English, and the king that you pledge allegiance to is not your king, is uh, is strange. But you know, nonetheless, he was tried uh, for treason, and and obviously he was found guilty. Um, and he was sentenced to death uh, and the English version for this at the time was to be hung, drawn and quartered which I have covered on a few episodes but just for the fun of it let's go through it again he was stripped naked and dragged through the streets of London by his feet he was then hung to nearly death cut down Uh, at the point of where he was nearly dead um, had his genitals removed and his stomach cut open his intestines were removed and then his still beating heart was cut out of his chest and shown to the crowd in the hand of the executioner and it was still beating in the executioner's hand now obviously Wallace was dead at this point he was then beheaded and his head was placed on Tower Bridge in London and his body was carved into four pieces and these four pieces were sent to Berwick-upon-Tweed the the scene for the first massacre Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland Aberdeen, which was a, uh, a, or still is, a massive city in Scotland and Stirling obviously the scene of his victory at Stirling Bridge and this was the end of William Wallace he was displayed uh, um, amongst his his own people in four different parts in four different towns in Scotland as a, a warning for anybody who goes up against King Edward um so yeah we're gonna leave you there with that story so hopefully you now know that the story of Braveheart is pretty much a load of shit um and he wasn't even called Braveheart uh hopefully you've learned a little bit from this episode um I do apologize if I do sound a bit tired in this episode it is half past 11 um, whilst I'm recording so it is very very late I don't normally record this late but um, with me 
off on my holiday or as you Americans say off on vacation um, in the next couple of days uh, finding time to actually do things is, is very difficult at the moment and this will be the only episode that you shall get off me uh, until I return so unfortunately we're going to have about a two week break now until you hear from me again um, if you are interested and you can't wait to hear any more from me get yourselves over to Patreon I say it every week but Patreon is where you get access to the extra shows there are some of the free feed shows up there at the moment without um, without adverts so they are on there you can get access to them you can also hear me on another podcast which is called Absolute Poppycock which is it's with me and Lee uh, this podcast is not history, history based it's more of a comedy slash chat show slash lads banter type of show um, we really enjoy recording this so uh, get yourselves over there and have a listen to that one there are a few shows on there at the moment um, but looking to upload a few more failing that if you are interested um, I will now be co-hosting um, going forwards the Realm of the Supernatural podcast with Lee Solway um, over on the paranormal side of podcasting um, just as you know he, he's a mate and he doesn't have a co-host at the moment so uh, knowing a little bit about podcasting and a little bit about his shows I thought I would put myself out there and help a, help a friend in need so uh, we are recording over there as well and um, that should be coming up in the next few days um, we have got a show recorded um, whether uh, while well, I'm waiting for him to put that one up so when that one goes up that'll be uh, that'll be Lee's job but like I said, if you, you can't wait two weeks to hear from me, you'll need to get yourselves over to Patreon. It's very, very easy. Patreon.com forward slash This Week in History, $5 a month. Now, I have got some guys on there that are paying me sort of 15 to $20 a month. There's some of you guys paying me $10 a month. Um, there is absolutely no need to do that, but I, I find that uh, very, very heartwarming. Um, you guys who are paying more than what you have to because you don't get any more for paying that it's just purely the love of what you're listening to and and I really appreciate that guys even one dollar over what you have to pay um, is amazing because it just shows that you really do appreciate what what we do here and what I'm what I'm doing with this podcast and um, like I said the, the support from you guys is fantastic the messages that I'm getting from you guys on Patreon about how much you love in certain shows. Um, I would say over there, some of the most popular shows are um, The Yorkshire Ripper, um, Peter Sutcliffe, that's on there. That's really, really popular. Um, there's some really popular ones on uh, John Gotti, that's quite a popular one. Um, Al Capone, Winston Churchill. Um, there are some really really cool episodes up there that are not on your free feed so get yourselves over there like I said it's, it is $5 a month if you do want to pay more um, then that is amazing like I said but if you want to support the show and you can't afford to do Patreon 
which I totally understand not everybody can but if you do want to support me and help me grow as a podcast then get yourself out there and just advertise it you know share the podcast share the facebook group on your on your page um share a podcast with a mate that you've listened to that you really enjoy um the more listeners i get you know the better it is for me um i get my statistics every week on how many are listening obviously the numbers fluctuate but they're normally around a thousand different people every week so you guys are you know are constantly there listening which which i love so the more the more listeners i get the more love i feel so let's uh you know if you can't help me and help the podcast financially help us in in a way that you know is going to benefit the podcast as well so advertise us share us uh let people know let your friends know let your family know um, if you i i do have a guy who's a school teacher on my patreon um, I won't be giving out his name, but I do have a school teacher on my Patreon, and he shared it with all of his students on on his uh, on on his podcast. You know, he, he told all his students to go and listen to this podcast. So, you know, anything like that is is a massive help for me. So, yeah, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for listening. And we shall see you in a couple of weeks. And just remember, we all have history. Make yours great. Bye bye. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. When you love riding a motorcycle, you want to ride it everywhere, even getting a dental checkup. Mr. Carter, wouldn't you prefer the chair? I'm fine on my bike, Doc. Well, let me know if you feel any discomfort. And when you love saving money, you want to save even more. That's why GEICO makes it easy to bundle your motorcycle and car insurance. All done, Mr. Carter. Remember to brush, floss, and lubricate your drive chain regularly. Kickstart your savings with GEICO Motorcycle. Bundle and save on the things you love. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a drama coach to be an IT guy. Yeah, I'm having trouble logging in. I'm not buying it. Say it again. This time with feeling. I can't log in? Come on, man. I want to feel your struggle. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Now, like your life depends on it. I can't log in. Yes, we'll make an actor out of you yet. For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply.